Psalm 34. Psalm 34. One of my favorite psalms. I remember Chuck preaching through the life of David and calling attention to the fact that when Saul is hunting David, who is a young man at this time, because God has rejected Saul and chosen David to be king, David and a few men are running and hiding in different places in Israel, and eventually he goes out of Israel. Saul and his armies are hunting David, and God, of course, protects David, but I can't imagine what that would have been like to be hunted by the king and the armies. But he writes this psalm when he is outside of Israel and fearful for his life. I will bless the Lord at all times. His mouth shall, his praise, pardon me, shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want or no lack. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to add our voices to the voice of hymn writers from ages past and psalm writers too. To say like David, by your grace, we will bless you, the I am, the unaltering, immutable, infinite, self-existing God and King. You have become so much more to us than just the one who made us and sustains us. You have become through your son, our redeemer, to ransom us. You have become the one who provided the sacrifice to atone for our crimes against you. You have paid the cost of death, which every sin cries out for. You have not in any way harmed your justice or tarnished your reputation as one who loves what is right and straight and pure. And yet you have brought so many to yourself and not one of them was right or straight or pure. You have given us your son and in giving us him you have given us everything. What more could we want having the prince himself Not just as the friend of sinners, 
and as the redeemer and discipler and teacher, the witness, the prophet, priest and king of a people. He is our life. He is all and in all now. Every distinction that used to mean something to us. Where people went to school, what they looked like, how they talked, what they did for a job. None of that matters at all to us anymore. All that matters now to your people is who is yours. We thank you for bringing us into a kingdom that we never could have earned entrance into. We thank you for giving us citizenship by a new birth. Like David, God, we have at times cried out to you when everything around us said that there was no way out. We were in a tight spot. And so many times, God, we would have to admit we chose the tight spot in unbelief and in pride and selfishness. But your mercy has amazed us. Your grace has come and conquered us again and again. And you have helped your people. You have granted us broken hearts over sin. You have shown us the ugliness of it when we thought it was beautiful. You have shown us the the preciousness of Christ for every person who believes. God, you have changed us little by little. And we are able to say to the people that sit next to us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you for giving us a fear of you, not the slave's fear of punishment from a person that despises them, but the fear of one who has been loved by an infinite being. So God, we pray, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes to see you as we've never seen you before. Give us such clarity and such happiness in knowing that we, by Christ, can call you ours. How could those words ever connect in any legitimate way, you and us? But they are, and so we refuse to lay down in despair. We refuse to shift into neutral When we are so disappointing to ourselves, but we come back again and again with a thousand complaints against ourselves, but not one complaint against you, God, save us all the way for the glory of your son. We pray that this morning would be some small part of that and not just here, but we think of the work of the kingdom down the street or across the world, souls that you have loved from eternity, that you have sought That you have valued amazingly, graciously chosen. All belongs to you. God, may you have all so willingly given. Start with us and our souls. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are returning again to the theme of discipleship, and I mean by that not the discipleship, maybe we could say little d, the discipleship that occurs when an older believer walks alongside a younger believer and helps them to understand how do I apply the things that I'm reading to everyday life. That is important, but that's not the discipleship. It's It's a relationship, a mentoring that results from the capital D, discipleship. That is, a person entering into a relationship with Christ, the Lord, who has come to save his enemies, and his or her life now is in this everlasting, continuing relationship with Christ in which Christ is the discipler, And you are the disciple. He is the teacher and you are the pupil. He's the mentor. He fashions you. In this relationship, he has all the authority. 
He has earned all our trust. And we are trained. We've called it on-the-job training. We are apprentices. And he is the master who shows us how in a life like this, with hearts and minds and bodies like this, with families like this, churches like this, how can anyone live with God and by God and for God? I think that is such an important question. I want to stop and emphasize that because in, I would say that most of us have grown up in a place and we have all grown up in a, in a time where, particularly in Western evangelicalism, there's been a lot of confusion and not just about secondary things. You know, there can be confusion about secondary things. There can be disagreements on how people interpret certain you know, symbols or, you know, certain passages. There can be disagreement on how churches are supposed to be organized, how you're supposed to do baptism. There are a lot of areas that we call secondary. I don't mean that they're not important, but they're not, they're not essential to the rescue of the soul. And we can agree to disagree with other believers in secondary areas. And there have, you know, I imagine... Ever since there have been believers, there have been more than one opinion, as long as there's more than one believer. But I'm talking about a confusion that has existed in the last century on the primary questions, things that we cannot afford to agree to disagree on. Questions like, who or what is God? And we assume that we all agree on that. Question like, how... Does God work in such a way for you and in you to save you? I mean, those are essential things. But another one of the essential questions that we need help with is, what does a Christian life look like? That is particularly difficult if you grow up in an area where Christianity is kind of the de facto religion. It's the default religion. You may not love the Lord at all. You may not read a Bible, but because you're born in New Albany, you would probably claim Christianity as your religion. You know, you fill out those forms and sometimes they'll have a space that says religion and you think, well, Christianity, rather, rather than maybe Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism. When you grow up in an area where Christianity is the official language, that means that probably everyone you work with almost without exception, or go to school with, or play on the ball field with, everyone is going to say that they're a Christian. And that can make life very confusing for a true Christian who wants to follow Christ. Because you look around and you say, wait, well, okay, so this is Christianity? I don't understand. It doesn't seem to match. There seems to be some pretty big areas of conflict between what I'm seeing and what I'm reading in the Bible. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people who come from other parts of the world and they talk about, uh, you know, there's persecution, there's the church is very small and how hard it is. Then you'll meet other people who would talk about where they're working or ministering and how dark it is. And everybody kind of looks at their own setting and thinks, oh, this is the worst kind of place to be a Christian. And sometimes I think North Mississippi is one of the worst places to be a Christian. Not one of the worst places to attend church. But very difficult. How easy it is to become easy or at ease with a cultural Christianity. It, it's just so seductive. None of us are above that. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, us inside this building. We've got it right. And everybody outside this building, they're, they're a little wrong. I just mean that it is so easy to look around and get my definition of what is expected of a Christian in everyday areas by looking at people around me or looking at a person in a church who sits next to me and say to myself, well, that's what they do. But if we go to the scripture and we let Jesus himself describe a follower, or a disciple, then as we've been talking about in the last number of weeks, month, you're going to need a fuel that will be sufficient to that definition. 
If you let Christ's words describe a Christian and the Christian life, then you're going to need something more than what you've got naturally to, to really follow him. And we've been talking about that. We've looked at the sufficiency of Christ, the glorious sufficiency of our Savior to disciple every true Christian. If we get the right measurements of Christ, then the measurements of yourself are not nearly as significant in this question. You can be a slow learner or you can be extremely bright. You can be very moral and and the way that you were brought up helps you or you can have a very immoral past and the way you were brought up makes things extra difficult. You can live and, uh, you know, in a, in a place that's helpful or unhelpful, a church, a workplace, Christian friends, unhelpful or helpful. But it doesn't matter. If we can see the discipler clearly, then we are, we are at least clear on this. If I want to follow Jesus of Nazareth, really, then he is enough to teach me how. He could disciple even me. How does it look when a person enters in to a lifelong authoritative relationship with the God-man who now does not live on earth, but has given you his book and his spirit? And what's the measure of that? What's the right understanding? Well, we looked at the fact that Christ was sufficient to atone for our sins, to pardon us and restore us even after we're Christians when we sin, and that breaks our heart. The excellency of Christ is sufficient to set us apart positionally. We no longer belong to the world, to ourselves. We are set apart, purchased, and set apart to God. And then Christ is sufficient to fashion us in his own image. Paul even says that Christ is sufficient to be our wisdom. That is, he doesn't just do all these wonderful things, but he actually opens your eyes and so shows you, you who once were blind, the truth of all of that. So you gladly grab hold of it and believe it. There are other things we could say. We'll have to limit our things, but this morning I want us to add something. I want us to add this question. Is Christ able to disciple you? Well, is he enough to rule or govern or manage all the affairs of your life? I've told you a number of times in the last month that I've been reading a little book by Cornelius Tyree called The Glorious Sufficiency of Christ. He was a pastor in the 1800s. Um, I, I suppose he would be, a, he was a Baptist in Virginia, and we would have been happily in agreement with the things he says. And as I've been reading this little obscure book, uh, I have found it to be just so helpful. And so I have tried to take as much of the treasure that Tyree gives and bring it to you without re-preaching his book. But I have totally stolen his chapter title for our theme this morning. And he has a chapter saying, the sufficiency of Christ to manage the affairs of our soul. I I tried to think of a better title. I tried to think of a better word. I went to a thesaurus, manage, what's a better word? You know, we'll govern, rule, and you know, but I just can't think of anything better. So I'm going to stick with that. Is Christ enough? Is he sufficient in all of his excellence to manage all the affairs of your life? Let's kind of think about the problem that we all face. We don't hand things over that are important to us, like us or people we love, things that are important to us. We don't hand those over to other people. And if we're not careful, we may think that God is okay with that when it comes to our vertical relationship. I like Tyree's uh, title because it points something out that, that the Bible points out from Genesis to Revelation. Maybe I can say it this way. That when God views every being that has a relationship with him, and I don't mean just believers, 
but even the creator-creature relationship. Every being capable of knowing him and of responding to him. When God views his connection with people, he always views that relationship as one in which he alone has the right and the ability to be trusted to manage their affairs. Now, sometimes we can act that way. You know, people say, so-and-so is a very controlling person. And um, I remember Misty pointing out that I'm a bit too controlling. I, I hope I've made some progress, but not enough. And here's how she knew it. She would be making something in the kitchen. I'd come and I'd go, oh, how, what's she doing? She said, oh, I'm making this. I go, hmm, I, I think he's probably... You should cut that smaller. You should add more of that. You should, and she'd go, well, what are you, my controller? Get out of the kitchen. Like, you don't know how to cook. I don't know how to cook. If she follows my advice, it would be really bad. And so I had to admit, like, yeah, I don't know really much about this. I probably should be quiet. So it's easy not to be a controller when you know you're ignorant. But what about those areas when you think, but I, I do know this area. If you, in every relationship you have, Make it clear to every person you're related to in your family, at work, at church, next door neighbors, that you have the right and the ability to manage all their affairs. You will not have many friends. We are all born thinking that we have the right to manage everything that's connected with us, every relationship, every person we care about. We even think that we manage God. Every one of us is born with this kind of statement in our hearts, and eventually we learn how to say it. Thank you very much, Mom. Thank you very much, Dad. But I can handle it from here. Thanks, friends. Thanks, leaders, teachers. Thank you, God, for the help you've given, but I can handle it from here. It is the natural religion of every person here this morning. We all were born in the church of the self-deluded and self-sufficient. I can handle it. And the idea that Christianity means you hand everything over to God and He now possesses you, and you're in full agreement with that, he possesses the right to manage and rule and govern every area of your life. That is something that we, that, that the world finds very strange. But I think something that's even more strange is this. The Christian loves it. When we're thinking right and we look at all the areas that we have responsibilities in, you know, we call it adulting. When we think of our kids or grandkids, a marriage, friendships, church, the reputation of God, the work that I'm supposed to be doing as unto him. When we think of our relationship, whether it's vertical or horizontal, we are so happy to be told that the Lord Jesus Christ is the manager or governor of every area because we are convinced of a number of things about this Christ that the unbeliever is not convinced about. And we have to just be honest if the unbeliever were right, we would be the fools. Why would you hand your life over to someone that you can't trust with it? But if the scripture is telling us the truth, and the men and the women who gave their lives to deliver that truth to us and never recanted on that truth, no matter how hard life got, if their testimony can be trusted, then the Christian is the happiest person when they agree fully that Christ is sufficient to manage every affair of my life. I want to give an illustration. And then, like, kind of from that illustration, I want us to look at what the scripture says. And then I want us to ask two eyewitnesses in particular. Okay? So here's the illustration. Um, we all, because we prefer to be in control, we are very reluctant to give up any control in any area of your life that matters to you. I mentioned the kitchen. It does not matter to me what Misty does in the kitchen. But there are some areas in my life that I think, oh, but that actually matters to me. We are so reluctant to give up any control to anyone else across the board 
We do not like other people managing us. But there are occasions where there are some differences. So here's the illustration. You are willing to trust people to manage your affairs when you run into a situation where you realize that at your best, you are not adequate for this problem. But you limit how much they're allowed to manage. So just some kind of normal illustrations. Think of a doctor. Something is wrong. You feel terrible. You go to the doctor and the doctor does his exams and then there's more exams and more exams and the doctor comes back and all these tests have been run and the doctor gives you the worst news possible. Some of you have had that happen to you. We think of Penny and the, and the advanced cancer and the shock of hearing those words. And so when a doctor says something to you that you know is far beyond your ability to fix, then you are not unhappy for him to manage your medical affairs. You don't just say to, to the doctor, okay, bad news, I, I, I know, but... What kind of lifestyle changes would you suggest? And do you think I should drink this kind of juice or take this kind of multivitamin? I'd like some advice. And if we have to do surgery, could you give me a book that tells how to do it? And I'll do it. You know, you numb me, but I'll do the work. We don't have that kind of cooperation with the doctor. If you're not that sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, I think you're going to be fine. But if you want, I can prescribe you. And you say, well, no, actually, thanks. But. I don't want the prescription. I think I'm not that bad off. I'm, I'm not bad enough to need the prescription. But when things are bad, we are glad to say to the doctor, no, you handle this. But even then, you and I, we retain control. When Penny went to the doctor and the doctor gave the diagnosis and a prognosis, and when they started the the cure for Penny, and they're doing all these procedures. Can you imagine how upset she would be if she signs all the papers that say, I'm willing for the doctor to do this, this, and this, and he, in surgery, I'm willing for him to do this, this, and this. But what if after surgery, you find out that the doctor, once he got in there, he thought, well, you know, I don't know. I think that this doesn't look very good. I'll just take this out. And this someday might not be, so I'll take this out. I mean, you don't want to come back in a few... And stuff not related to the cancer, and the doc just decides he'll do whatever he wants. You would be so furious. You would say, you only had authority to do what we talked about. I signed papers. That's all you're allowed to do. Human nature. We do not hand even a doctor absolute authority over our medical situation. Another illustration there are times where we're very needy and we're willing to hand control over to someone a little more, but only in the area that they're an expert, right? Not in every area. So if you go home today and you hear a noise as you're opening your front door and you think, what's that strange noise? And you open the door and the entire floor of your house is flooded. You've had pipes to burst and there's water everywhere you probably would call, among, among the many people you call, you, you'll call a plumber and you say, you've got to get here. My house is a wreck. And the plumber looks at the situation. He says, well, I can do, I can. And you say, look, just whatever you need to do, fix it. So in a sense, we just kind of hand that over. You manage my pipe problem. But after he fixes your pipes, you're probably not going to ask him, could he do the surgery that you need? Or would he give you uh, a lot of advice on your marriage? Or could he tell you where to invest your money if you're in trouble? So we're willing to hand control over to somebody when things are bad and it's beyond us. But it's limited and it's limited to what area they're good in. Now, there are times where things are so very bad and you find a person who is very skilled and you are happy to hand things over if you know they care about you. So if, let's say, you take your child to the doctor because the child is hurting 
And the doctor gives that worst news about the child. Not you. Your child has cancer. And when, you know, when the terrible shock wears off and, and you're having to talk to the doctor about the nitty gritty, about what, what can be done. And the doctor has all these things. But, you know, the doctor may say to you, I'm, look, I'm not an expert in this field. I, I think you need to go to this hospital in Houston or in L.A. or wherever and I think you need to get an appointment with Dr. So-and-so. And it's hard to meet with him because he's the leading man in this field. But your child, this rare situation, he needs that man and that procedure. And that's the only man that has the experience in this. And you think, whatever it takes, we'll see that man. And if you were able to get into that doctor's office and the expert said to you, I understand exactly, I'm reading the charts, I see what's wrong, I have done this procedure hundreds of times. I will do it for you. You would be happy to hand it over if you thought that was true. But much more so if that man was a close friend. And if the doctor you visited said, you need to go see Dr. So-and-so in Houston. And you said, who? <laughs> That's a very close friend of mine. We, we, we were childhood friends and you go there and he brings you in. He puts you right up front of the line and he does the procedure. And you're so happy that that doctor is not handing you a book on the procedure and you're not doing the surgery. Now, I've spent all this time to make this point. Every one of us, if we're going to hand any area of our life over, we want to know that the person we're handing our life, that area over to is an expert. He knows everything he needs to know. We, we would like for him to have some experience. We don't want the expert who just got out of college telling us that he can handle it. We, we would like some, some experience. We want this person to have the ability to do what they say they can do. The right to do what they say they can do. And we want to know that they have our best interest in mind. Now, apply this to yourself spiritually. When we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see how deep the stain goes and how the problem goes so much deeper than we can fix, every person who sees that clearly and then sees Christ is happy to hand every area to Christ without restraints, without saying, you have my, you have my agreement to do this much, not that. To go this far, not that far. If your view of Christianity is coming to Christ and saying, I see in the scriptures that you can do a lot for people, so I would like for you to be my savior, and I am telling you right now, you can go this far, you can work in this religious area, you can work in my marriage, you can work it, but there are areas that I don't think you're that good in and I'll keep control of these. That is not Christianity. Or if you say to God, you can have some influence in every single area. I would like to know your opinion. I would like your help. That is not Christianity. Christianity is when you have hit rock bottom and God has shown you how gloriously sufficient his son is so that you are able to say wholeheartedly, even though you won't perfectly follow your words, that's your desire. I want you to rule. I want you to govern. I want you to manage everything about me. In the God-man, infinite knowledge, expertise, ability, experience, the right and authority and the love that is needed to free us from every fear when someone says, are you willing for Christ to be in control of everything? And the answer is yes. Think about the sufficiency of Christ as fully God or truly God and truly man. Think about those categories we talked about. We want someone to know enough. You need to be an expert in this field. Great plumber, I'm not sure about abdominal surgery, all right? So I'm going to go find someone that knows a lot about that. When you come to Christ, does he know enough about any area of life 
of human existence, of struggles, of your enemy, of you and how much you need in every way for you to trust him? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not just any area. It's just every area. A.W. Tozer said this, Christ, being God, knows instantly and with a perfection of fullness that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or present or future. As the God-man, Christ cannot be instructed. He cannot add new knowledge. He can never have to go back and reread books that he read before to know how to help you. He doesn't need to reason through a problem. He never asks advice and he cannot possibly err in judgment. Listen to what David said, Psalm 147. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. That is, there just isn't any edge to his understanding. He knows everything in this category, but he also knows everything in every category. And he knows it all effortlessly. That's why Isaiah, in a very difficult time, says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Anybody given God directions? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who informed him of the way of understanding? And and that question could go out across the world 10 million times, no matter how many advances we've had in science, uh, you know, or any, any area of human learning, there would never reach a place where we'd say, actually, I need to explain this to God now. Infinite understanding. He knows you. He knows your thoughts, Ezekiel said, from afar. Job says he, knew, he knows your steps that you take in the day, all the little choices. He knows your needs. The real ones before you even ask. Is that not enough? He knows your enemy. He knows every tactic that the enemy of your soul can possibly use or has used or is presently using. He knows the favorite traps. He knows the believable lies. He knows the disease of sin perfectly. He knows what parts of you are broken. He is a banker that knows how indebted you are and how impossible it is for you to ever pay it. Can you not trust him with the management of everything? He understands everything about every event that has ever occurred in the world. Every complex situation is simple to him. He knows fully every detail of every relationship you are in or have been in or will be in. He knows everything, every word in every book of every library that has ever existed on this planet. He knows the cosmic things. He knows the facts of the galaxies. He knows the microscopic things. And if that's not impressive enough to us, he knows more than that. He knows God. Only God knows God, Paul tells us. If we think about Christ as the God-man knowing all things, so I can trust him to manage all things. Think Think of this category of knowing God. He knows the infiniteness of the uncreated being. He is that being. He knows the infinite thoughts of the Father. He knows the infinite plans, the intricate details, as well as the overarching, where everything's going to end. He knows the being that has an infinite lifespan, that lives in every place, infinite location, infinite perfection. Do you need more than that for him to govern the important areas of life? So he's an expert. He has experience. No Christian here today will be the first person to bring any problem. No matter how weird and unique you feel it is. You will never be a person who comes to God and says, 
you know, you lock the door, you get on your knees and you say, God, my my God. And you pour out your heart. You will never have this situation. God stepping back in shock and saying, now that's a new one. Never heard that one before. Every struggle that's part of the human existence, every struggle that's part of loving a holy God, when you are still so capable of unholiness, in a world that treasures unholiness, every question, every confusing problem, every situation, every desperate need is fully understood from eternity past. God knows all. God knows the next second for every human. He knows the future for every person. How can you possibly think you could bring him something that would in any way catch him off guard? You will not be bringing God anything new. Now, that means that he has experience. So he's not the surgeon that's brilliant, but he just got out of college. He's the surgeon that's brilliant, but he's been doing it longer than anyone else because he is He is the ancient of days and he has walked Abraham and he has walked Moses and he has walked next to Samson's parents when after being so careful to raise them in a way that honors God, the next thing their son says as soon as he's old enough to kind of be on his own, he says, I I like that Philistine girl. I don't care if she worships gods other than the living God. God knows how to guide nations Kings, parents, grandchildren, God knows how to comfort, how to protect, how to provide in every possible situation. And it's not theoretical. He has actually done that for 10,000 times, 10,000 people. If we want to find a human who is an expert in the field and has the most experience, well, they will probably be, you know, gray haired. But there is a certain place, you know, there's a certain time in a person's life where you think, well, I'm glad they have the most experience, but they are getting kind of old. And I wonder if their skills have deteriorated. Has, is their mind less sharp? Is their hand shaky? Maybe I don't want that person. Maybe someone with a little less experience, not that old. But with God, he's eternal. Not that he just is really, really old. It is that he is timeless. The ancient of days who is not elderly. He cannot in any of his perfections wither, decrease, decay. The God that called all things into existence possesses every bit of that power to work in your life. To deliver you from sin. The God who carefully explain things to Moses for worship can carefully teach you how to walk with him now. He's an expert. His track record, not just is he the expert who has a lot of experience, but what about his track record? Any mistakes along the way, even a handful, I mean, you know, if it's a thousand to one, I'm, I'm okay with that. No, Not once. Every person governed by him. That governing, that managing has resulted in ultimately in a perfect, measureless happiness. Will you be the first follower of Christ, the first disciple to arrive at the end of the journey and say, I'm glad I'm here, but he made a lot of mistakes along the way. Well, you won't be. I mean, if you just read the scriptures honestly, did Joseph say that? When God gives him the vision that he will be the most significant of all of his family, and he tells his brothers, and they're not real keen on that, so they go to kill him, and then they sell him into slavery, at least to get a few dollars for him, better than just killing him. And Joseph spends that, those days in prison, forgotten, Even when he helps the guys that are in prison and they get out, they forget him. They forget that they're supposed to remember him. Does Joseph at the end of his long days, does the Bible record him saying, I want to thank God I have arrived at a good place finally 
But he did make some mistakes. Moses, when at the end of his life, he's not allowed to go into the promised land because he sinned publicly. David, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, anybody in scripture, any believer who's reached the end who will tell you he mismanaged the affairs of my life. We need more than that. I need to know that he has ability. I need to know that he has the right. When Job spoke of God at the end of that book, he came up with this conclusion. No person had the ability to thwart any plan that God has. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his insanity, God humbles him and he says, no one can legitimately question God's right to rule in the heavens or down on earth. But I don't think any of that is enough. We need to know one other thing. If you are to freely, happily give yourself over to him day after day as a follower, you will have to know that the one with infinite knowledge, infinite experience, infinite right, also has infinite goodwill, good intentions, love for your soul, for things that matter. I need someone who knows me right now better than I know me. I cannot afford to come to God today and say to him, God, please would you, and then he interrupts me and says, what is this? Point something out in my life and, and I say, uh, I didn't even notice that God. And then God say, neither did I till just now. Deals off. There is no person on the planet that would like you if they knew you, really knew you. I can't imagine anyone liking me. When God opens our eyes to ourselves, we have trouble liking us. How can a God who never is okay with the slightest sin love you? And yet he does, and he draws every reason from within himself. Based on who he is and his amazing choice, he has poured a river of love toward you. Think about what the prophets say. God speaks to Israel and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you from afar. And with the cords of love, I drew you. He could say that to every believer here. But he could also talk about the future like Paul does in Romans 8. There is nothing that can possibly sever you from the love of God that has reached you in Christ. It is impossible. Nothing in heaven or earth can do it. If I met a person who was an expert in every area and who loved me more than I love me, and who said to me, let me manage your life. And I saw that he had done it for others. And they had been so happy. I would be thrilled to hand my life to him. Why wouldn't I? The scripture talks about God's love for us. It talks about his perfections. It talks about his wisdom. It talks about the power. The knowledge. All of it. Will we Take it seriously and say to Christ, I am not just believing and uh, doing some new things. I am handing, moment by moment, everything to you to be managed by you. Now let's close with just looking at these two examples, David and Paul. David is one, I think, that you know we would all agree. It's like David went through every possible human experience and you think, you know, what didn't David go through? Just read the Psalms. I just want to read a couple because we don't have time to do more. Let me read a few verses to you. Psalm 40, David feeling his need. In verse 17, he says this, since I am afflicted, so there's troubles, and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. 
You, he says to God, are my helper and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. Have you ever been there? I am in troubles, surrounded. I am needy. So God, my helper, don't be slow. That's Psalm 40. Psalm 3, he says this. When people notice David's troubles, he says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I laid down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. You see the picture all around. It's not just David. It's other people are saying, man, he's in a bad spot. It's the kind of bad spot that church isn't going to help. And so he turns to God. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Now, sometimes God's answer to David, and you can find this throughout David's life in the historical narratives of the Bible, but you find it also in his Psalms where he just spills his guts. He says things like this, Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I drifted from God. But now I keep your word. Another, Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Another, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. And in faithfulness, you afflicted me. What's David's conclusion? If you have your Bible, jump back to Psalm 34 that we read to open. I want to just point out, just read through six verses of it. Verse 1 through 4 and then 18 and 19. Psalm 34, when David is being hunted, David, the one who's cried out all these requests, what does he say about God? What testimony do we have? David, be honest. Could you trust him with the management of all affairs of your life? This is what David says at a hard time, not the easy time. I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 1, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. David was there. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. David was there. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So, eyewitness testimony. We, when things are really bad, we do appreciate other people who have been through what we're going through. So they, they've already been through it. We see this in human nature. We have support groups for everything. A soldier comes back from deployment and he's been in a war and there are support groups for the soldiers who have to deal with those memories now. And then there are support groups for the wives and children of the soldiers who are having to deal with that. There are support groups for people who have abused substances, alcohol and drugs. And there are support groups for the people related to the people who are abusing drugs there are support groups for people who are handicapped, and there are support groups for people who are caring for the handicapped. We want to know, when we're going through a very, very hard time, what other people who went through the same hard time, how, they're handled, how they handled it, how, how they made it. God has given you thousands of pages. God has given you hundreds and thousands of chapters where people just like you went through things just like you and he had them recorded so you could hear what they have to say about him. Can he be trusted to manage all the affairs? And David says yes. Last example is Paul. Nobody is so clear as Paul is about the fact that God is doing all things perfectly and he can be entrusted with the Management of your life. Colossians 1, Paul says, or sorry, Colossians 2. In Christ, God has p 
packed all the wisdom. There is no one whose knowledge and skill comes close to the God-man. Romans 11, being that way, as God, he needs no advice. And he's never asked for any help. Ephesians 1, the Father raised him from the dead by an almighty expression of his power and then caused him to be ascended back to heaven to receive the glory he had before creation. And now the God-man is ruling at the right hand of the Father. And on this dual throne, Paul says, Christ is ruling all things, carrying out the Father's will. But in Ephesians, he says, for the good of his people, for the church. In Romans 8, Paul applies that and says, because of all of that, all things work together for good for those who Love God and are called according to his purpose. To the true Christian. Not all things are good. There is a lot that's bad. But even the bad becomes a tool for good in the hands of a God like this. Who can manage our affairs. Now those are all wonderful things. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. This is the final letter that we have from Paul in the Bible. After a life of love to Christ. That has cost him everything. Every, you know, the family relationships, the friendships you can imagine. Physically, he is a scarred man. He has been rejected by his own people that he has come to tell good news to. He's been accused of things he did not do. He says that when he goes to a new town, he says, I, Christians like me, we are the off-scouring of society. He is despised for loving Christ. He is in Rome, in prison again. This is not the imprisonment that comes at the end of the book of Acts. That occurred earlier. In that imprisonment, when you see in 2 Timothy him describing his situation, it's different. Into the book of Acts, his first Roman imprisonment, he has certain freedoms. People can come and talk to him and he can share the gospel with anybody that wants to come. But by the time you reach 2 Timothy, he is, he is facing Execution. He will be martyred. That's the next thing in Paul's earthly life. He has been deserted even by fellow preachers who traveled with him because they cannot face the cost that Paul is facing. They cannot bear it. And in their cowardice, they distance themselves from Paul. He's cold. He has to ask Timothy, if you can, come see me and bring me a coat. Can you bring me my books? Everyone has deserted me except for, and there's a couple of bright exceptions. Having lost everything and being a good theologian, so Paul can say, I've lost everything, and it has been by Christ managing my affairs that I am scarred, and I don't look the same after being stoned and beaten. I don't walk the same. I... I'm not liked by the people that I used to love. Here I am in prison facing death. What does Paul have to say about the managing of his affairs by this God now? Well, look at 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. I'll just pull a couple verses. For this reason, I also suffer these things that he's talked about. The loss of everything. But I am not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. Why? For I know whom... I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul, you've lost everything and you're not embarrassed of all the great things you said about Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. Why not, Paul? Because he still holds in his hand everything I've entrusted. He is managing my affairs perfectly. Earlier, when he was in prison in Rome, he wrote to the Ephesians and he called himself the prisoner of the Lord. It's Christ that put me in prison. Not Jews, not Romans. Let me read another verse. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, he says to Timothy, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer, present tense, hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all 
things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So Paul is clear. Christ has put me here for this purpose. Verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. One more passage. Chapter 4 of Paul's letter, verse 16. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense, he says, going before the officials, no one supported me, but all deserted me. You know, when Paul's accused of being a troublemaker, the Christians in Rome didn't come forward and say, please, there's religious differences here between Paul and the Jews, but he's not what they say he is. They all deserted him. May it not be counted against him, he says. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished. There's a purpose here. And that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And after that, he's executed. To him be the glory forever and ever. Executed. You're in prison. Yes, he has managed my affairs well. I am able to speak to the leaders of the empire of Rome about King Jesus. And the Gentiles have heard. And he will save me from all their plans. He does. Paul finishes the course. And tells us that God has, man- has managed every area well. A couple of applications. Simply. One. There is no practical benefit. To being told that he can be trusted to manage every affair in your marriage, children, every area, your, your work and church, your besetting sins, your new fears. It doesn't matter. There's no benefit in any of that. If all you have is what I just said and these vague ideas that Jesus is trustworthy, that's all you have to fuel obedience you will need to study that book that tells us. Study the scriptures. Ransack the Bible so that you have specific testimonies and specific words that hold you to the course when making little hidden compromises as a Christian seem to promise that you can avoid so many costly things. And it's very tempting, you think. It won't hurt anybody. Nobody will know. But God knows. And you will need more than vague ideas of Jesus being trustworthy if you're going to hold the course then. But don't just study the book to find the specifics of his trustworthiness. Speak from that book. It is easy when people we love are going through very difficult times. So not the normal difficult, right? Not not the normal stuff that we complain about. But I mean the kind of stuff that just lays you low and you don't even know what to say. And so you look at your friend or your family member and you think, "I I don't know what to say. It is very tempting to join them in despair or self pity and say, man, You're right. That's terrible. I remember reading John Newton's letter to a very sick woman. This was a terrible disease. She was in constant pain and there was no hope of it being relieved. And he started the letter like a normal Christian letter. You know, uh, greetings, sister in the Lord. And he started to say, you know, I am sorry when I hear how. And then he stopped himself and said, I almost continued my letter that way, but I have to stop myself. How could I pity you? When you belong to him who manages all these things perfectly. So he prayed for her. He wasn't indifferent. It is easy to speak in a despairing way, in a dark way about God or life. When the person you love is in a dark place. You feel, you know, you feel the sympathy. 
It's natural. It is not the way for the Christian. You'll have to say things in a loving way, not in some harsh way. But you'll have to find words from God's book that puts strength in a person and not just sympathy. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. His very first letter that we have in the Bible. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we will live together with him. Then here comes this command. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are already doing. So, Find in the scripture by hard work. Find the realities you'll live on to turn everything over to him. Each moment of the day of the Christian life. And then share them with the people around you. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.